so I'll be reading uh, from James 4, 1 through 17 this morning. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that ba- desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of the Lord. Please take. Hey, Taproot, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Hey, if this is your first time with us. We just want to welcome you to our church. My name is Luis, and I am one of the pastors, and we are so glad that you're here. We hope that you're feeling uh, incredibly welcome this morning. Um, This is super random, but today is September the 16th. It's a random date, right? Exactly. Exactly. Just got really dark. All right, here we go. Well, September the 16th is an important day. The big day in the Mexican community. And as you know, or I, at least I think you know, I was born and raised in Mexico. 19 years of my life were spent there. And I just feel compelled this morning to do a little uh, public service announcement. Is that okay? All right. Well, the announcement is this. Uh, Cinco de Mayo is not Mexico's Independence Day. Shocking. That's right. Mexico's Independence Day is actually today. It's a big day. Yes. So to all my Mexican brothers and sisters, happy Independence Day. Right, I'm done. That was my PSA for this morning. You're welcome. All right. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of James. Keep them in the book of James or your Bible app. We're going to need them this morning, so stay there. And uh, as we... Continue uh, through this book. Man, I am excited about this morning's talk. Uh, the, the title for this morning's teaching is, James, it's about the war for the heart. It's about the war for the heart. Now, I want to look at four things this morning, and they are not completely in the order that they appear in the text. But if you follow the logic of James in the text, it's going to flow in a way that makes a lot of sense. So here are the four things that I would like to talk about this morning, and this is on the screen. Verses 1 through 5, James will talk to us about our self-centered desires that lead to conflict. 
verses 11 and 12, James will point out the self-righteous judgments that we make of others because of our hearts that are in a war. In verses 13 through 17, James will address the self-sufficient planning that we presumptuously attempt to make because of our hearts that are in a battle. And finally, we'll look back at verses 6 through 10, where James tells us of the cure for transforming hearts that are at war. And the cure for that is the gospel. Now, here is the big idea for today. So if you can remember one thing, try to remember this. James is going to give us a window into how the heart operates. Our hearts are full of desires that are at war within us. And when our horizontal desires win over our vertical desires, the result is conflict, judgment of others, and self-sufficiency. And the only answer we have is Jesus, who must rule in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Uh, I pray, God, that you would speak to us today. We need you. Lord, I, I, I know there are all kind of backgrounds in this audience, all kinds of different things that we carried into this room with us. Would you meet every person where they need you to meet them? Above all things, God, I pray that your people today would be encouraged, equipped, that they would be... Um, given hope and life. May you also convict us, God, and, and grow us in grace. Help us to become more like Christ. Draw people to yourself. And I pray that Jesus would be the, the main dish this morning. May the gospel go forth in power. May the Holy Spirit, may you do your work today. And may God, may you be glorified. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's look at verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enemy, enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says for that reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? In our text, James is continuing to unfold the main point in his letter. That a true, authentic, living, genuine faith will lead to a life of obedience to God. In chapter 3, last week, James began dealing with the problem of conflict within the church. The issue seems to have been that people in the church were using their tongues to tear one another down. James then turns in chapter 4 to consider and address the source of what is happening. And in a brilliant explanation of human nature, fallen as it is, he shows us what happens when our horizontal desires for people, for possessions, for recognition, for power, for control, for acceptance, for attention, for pleasure, win over our vertical desire, the desire to know, love, and glorify God with our lives. Now, since James's opening question is a rhetorical one, it leads us to understand that there was a problem of quarreling, of fighting going on in the church. Fighting in the church. That doesn't happen, right? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. I got hired as a 22-year-old punk to become a youth pastor. Don't, that's bad practice. Don't do that. Not long after that, I got invited to preach at my very first Sunday morning gathering, which is a big deal, right? It's the first time that I was not going to address junior hires or high school kids, which was awesome, but I was going to address the big church or whatever. I was pumped. So I'm preparing. I show up to Sunday morning that day with a man that we just newly married, and I walk into this church, and the elder who had invited me to speak greets me at the door, and he says, hey, I got to talk to you for a second. Now, I'm assuming he's going to talk to me about logistics, right? This is when you start. This is when you got to finish. This is, here's the mic. 
the practical stuff, but he pulls me aside to this random hallway around the corner. And I'm kind of like, this is a little weird. Like away from the sanctuary or the auditorium. And he introduces me to another man. And he says, this is uh, so-and-so, and and he is with the local police department. And I'm like, what? It's, It's weird, right? And he proceeds to tell me a story that there had been some conflict going on in the church. And that the elders or the leaders of that congregation had gotten a call that week with a threat. That because of the conflict that had been going on, this particular gentleman was going to cause this big scene that Sunday morning. Now, all my romance about ministry is going out the window, right? I'm like, oh my word. I thought church was awesome. So now I'm like... I'm, I'm nervous because I'm about to preach the Bible, and now I'm, like, terrified because some riot is about to happen, right? My eyes are, you know, incredibly big. So somehow I, they said it like it was no big deal. Now I go back into the auditorium, like, like just looking around, like, what, what's going to happen here? Sit down, worship with song begins, and I'm still kind of, like, looking around, like, what? Waiting for the moment to, for this big, seen to occur. Long story short, I get up there, I preach, and as soon as I was done preaching, I hand the mic back over to this pastor, and like, like a relay, the moment that I hand the stick over, some guy raises his voice and he says, I want, I got something to say, and I'm like, oh gosh, here it comes. So I sit down, the pastor kind of ignored him, so the guy gets louder and louder. I mean, this is the middle of Sunday morning gathering. Long story short, a big war of words ensues. And uh, people had to be literally dragged off the auditorium. It was awful. It was terrible. Unbelievable. This stuff should not happen in the church. But it happened. It happened to me. And it happens all over the place. Fighting in the church conflict in the church. But here's the deal. Because we are sinners, it doesn't take much to produce a quarrel or a fight in the church or for that matter elsewhere. James asks, what causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? And then he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't mention a particular subject matter because the issues are secondary to James. The reason we fight, he tells us in the text, It's because of the desires that are at war within you. The desires in your heart that are battling within you. He is saying to us, our hearts are at war. Let's talk about desires for just a second. You and I are always desiring. Our desires precede, determine, and characterize everything we do. They are the lenses through which we examine every single situation. And at the foundation of all worship is a heart full of desire. Now, James is encouraging us to examine our desires. And what he doesn't do, which is important, is he does not place the word evil before the word desire. What he is saying is that the heart of every person is a fountain of competing desires. Hearts that are divided, hearts in a battle, hearts in conflict, hearts that are at war. And at the deepest level, the war that is going on is between our desires for anything in creation, our horizontal desires, and our desire for God, our vertical desire. James is basically saying this. Before there is a problem out there, there is a problem in here. It all flows from the heart. In our text, he goes on to say, you desire but do not have, you, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. It all begins in here, and it leads to conflict. That's the first thing he addresses. And here's the thing. Conflict is inevitable in this world. 
Conflict is one of the principal effects of the fall, and it does not take much to incite it. And according to this text, conflict begins with self-centered desires of hearts that are in a battle, hearts that are at war. Now, some of you do not like conflict. So I got to break it to you, and I'm sorry, but it's going to happen. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We all sin. Everybody you meet daily sins. We are in a fallen, sinful world. There is going to be conflict. Now, let me say this. There is such a thing as necessary conflict. There are truths like the gospel. There are things that are right and just that we should vigorously defend. But even when we have a righteous cause, we should pursue to do so in a the right way. So the options we have are to enter into conflict in a virtuous, godly way, or we can do so in a very worldly, sinful way. Let's look at the text and put them side by side. Here are a couple marks of sinful conflict. They begin with our self-centered desires. It starts internally with our emotional life becoming unhealthy, untethered, or unhelpful. And in our text, James points to murder as the extreme result of frustrated, selfish desire, borrowing the logic of Jesus that equated anger and hatred with murder. But the reality is, the sad reality is, that conflict, unresolved, can escalate quickly into injury, maybe even death. Then, sinful conflict is combined with coveting, which is when we want what they have. They have something we want, and so what happens then is we want to take it from them so that we can have it, or we want to take it from them so that they can have it. James in the text is basically saying this, you forgot to ask God for it. If you want whatever they have, you shouldn't covet them. You should ask God for it. And then he says, and sometimes you get frustrated because we did ask God, and he said what? No. So actually, what looks like a conflict between people is actually a conflict with God. They asked God for something, and he said yes, and we asked God for something, and he said no. So we want to have conflict with them because we're covetous of them, and we're not accepting what God had for us. So sinful conflict begins with self-centered desires of the heart combined with coveting, exploding into quarreling, and fighting. And on the other hand, we've got virtuous, godly conflict. And it begins, according to verse 6, with humility. Now, here are a few things that humility allows us to do. Humility in the middle of a conflict allows us not just to see the other person's sin, which is very easy, but it allows us to see our sin as well. Humility allows us to get quieter. Not louder. Humility says, if you are going to get louder and louder, I'm going to get quieter. And as I do that, I'm going to invite you to get quieter with me so we can actually have a conversation. Humility allows us to listen, to listen more and to speak less. What can I learn from what is happening? What do I need to hear? What is true in this? What is helpful in this? So it allows us to listen more and speak less. And ultimately, humility allows us to be patient. So James is literally opening the rib cages of our body and giving us a window into how hearts that are in a battle, hearts that are in a war, operate. So our hearts are full of self-centered desires, conflicting desires, and that leads us to conflict. He opens with a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you, which we just examined? And then he asks a second question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So in verses 11 and 12, James will confront the self-righteous judgments that our hearts at war make of others. Again, it all begins and it all flows from the heart. So look at the text. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, Do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now let's, let's start here. The most the easiest, the most common form of quarreling is via the mouth. Ever been there? Sin finds its easiest exit route from our hearts via the mouth. I said earlier, sinful conflict begins with self-centered desires combined with coveting, exploding into quarreling and fighting. When we feel attacked, our knee-jerk reaction is to do what? To attack back. To defend ourselves. And like we learned last week, our tongues, our words are difficult to control, incredibly powerful, extremely destructive, and unbelievably inconsistent. We called them last week our very own personal weapons of mass destruction. In chapter 3, we were also told that it is blatant hypocrisy, double-mindedness, and sin to bless God and then casually curse those who bear his image. James is now going to say that Christians are not to slander or defame a Christian brother in speech, which would be incredibly tempting in the middle of conflict. Right? Now let's clarify. James does not mean the believers are never to exercise discretion or judgment about the things they hear other people say. James does not mean that we are not to evaluate a person or that person's action biblically. He does not mean that we go, that we're to go into judgment autopilot and never evaluate anyone or their actions from a biblical perspective. Nor does it even mean that we are never to say anything negative about another person. If he meant any of those things, James would have already violated those things in his book, in his letter. He had some fairly hard things to say about people who have claimed to have faith and yet don't show it in their life. Even in this passage, if you look at the second half of verse 11, James passes a judgment on people who judge. So he himself is willing to exercise discretion and make evaluations. So what does James mean? He is speaking about speech that tears, a, that tears down a fellow believer or neighbor. He's talking about speech that is often not in the presence of a fellow Christian, which tears them down and builds at their expense. And if I can be honest with you, maybe you can be honest with yourself, I've done this. A couple, a couple, maybe about a year ago, I was in a meeting with a bunch of my peers, and um, I made a decision that wasn't very popular. I still think it was the right decision, but it wasn't very popular. And in this meeting... There were some questions about why I decided what I why I decided, and so I. It got brought up, and the way that it got brought up made me feel attacked. Anybody ever been there before? It can be totally right what they're saying, but they said it in a way that just made me kind of. I wanted to bow up and fight back. Now, thankfully, I had a little bit of wisdom. So I didn't. <laughs> I just listened and kind of kept my mouth quiet. But when I got home, because my heart is wild, because my heart is, uh, there's desires competing often, my mouth came on court. And you know what? It made me feel good. Selfishness makes us feel good. But it was wrong. It was a sin. So I had to repent before God. I had to repent before my wife. And I had to go find this other person and repent before them. 
Anybody ever been there before? I think we all struggle with these kinds of sins of speech. So how do we check them? How, what do we do about them? How do we check hurtful, divisive, destructive speech? Well, the first thing, according to verse 11, is to remember who you are speaking about. Who is it that you are about to tear down? The text gives us three words, brothers, sisters, and neighbors, all who are image bearers of God. Now, James is reminding you this simply to point out that brothers ought not to be hurting brothers and sisters and neighbors. We ought to be cultivating close and friendly and encouraging and healthy, mutual, helping relationships in our, with and in our speech. We should desire and pursue the flourishing of brothers and sisters and neighbors. So he says, when you are ready to tear into somebody... Tear them down. Remember who you're about to speak about. It's a brother. It's a sister. It's a neighbor. People who, even though they could be incredibly different than you, they all reflect the image of God. James also reminds us of what we are speaking against. When you speak against a brother or a sister, you're actually speaking against the law of God. It's not just your brother's reputation you are breaking. It is God's law that you are breaking. When we do those things, you're saying, well, God's law is wrong. I'm going to do this anyway. Even though that God's law tells me not to speak about a brother or a sister or a neighbor that way, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Therefore, God's law is wrong. Or maybe you're simply putting yourself above obeying God's law and thus becoming a judge of God's law. He also says, if you look at verse 12, that we need to remember who we are claiming to be and who we are claiming to displace. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. God himself is the judge. And when we set up ourselves in his place in tearing down and condemning, judging another, we are claiming to take his place. So what has James been saying to us? He's saying that words can reveal the condition of our hearts, of hearts that are in a war, hearts that are in a battle. From our hearts, which are, again, in this constant ebb and flow, in this constant war full of self-centered desires, coveting, self-focus, and pride, flows conflict and judgment of others. And he is not done yet. He is going to give us another glimpse into what a heart that is divided, a heart in a battle, what a heart at war does. So he gives us now an illustration showing us the self-sufficient planning that we so presumptuously attempt to make. Now, here's the deal. We live in a day of personal digital assistance in the palm of our hands. I am so thankful for smartphones. We live in a day of futurist conferences. Anybody ever heard of Elon Musk? We live in a day of planning mania. And the very mindset of the culture around us encourages us to be presumptuous in our approach to life and even to planning. Now, James is not assaulting planning. James is not saying, don't plan. James is not saying, don't be good stewards of the resources God has given you. He's not saying, don't budget. He is not saying any of that, but he is talking about a worldliness, a sinfulness that can invade and pervade our thinking about the future, which can manifest itself in how we talk about it and in our planning of it if we are not careful. James points out several things in verse 13 that show us a worldly presumption and a lack of humility. In verse 13, he starts by speaking about a presumption of time. The text says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow. James, in those few words, is reminding us that our time is in God's hands. We can't say today or tomorrow because our time is not ours. He then speaks of 
our presumption of place. We will go to this or that city. And as you read this, you can picture a businessman, a planner doing demographics and saying this restaurant will go well here, a bank will work well there, a service business can do well here, they need this, they need that. And yet James says that a favorable situation, even great planning, does not ensure success. He also speaks of a presumption of duration. We will speak, we will spend a year there. We can think to ourselves, We've got all this time in the world. But how much time does the world have? Earlier this week was the anniversary of 9-11, which is also one of those moments that kind of help you put things into perspective. Many of us have heard stories of the people who were on their way to work to the World Trade Center on 9-11-2001, not realizing that that would be their last day on earth. And here's the thing. We can all slip into that mentality. James shows us another presumption in the text, in verse 13, of effort that these people are going to engage in. We'll carry on business. And then he speaks of a presumption of the results. We will make money. Now, what is noticeable in this very short sentence in this little illustration, is that God does not factor in it at all. And that's James's point. Now understand that James is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians who are not factoring God into the stuff of their everyday lives. God is isolated on a Sunday morning for an hour, but in the business of life, he does not factor That is what a sinful, self-centered, prideful, battling heart wants. What a heart at war wants. Separation and isolation from God because guess what? We've got this. I can do this. There's no mention of God. No mention of his providence. No indication of prayer. No humility about what might or might not happen tomorrow. And what happens is we've created this firewall in our life between God in all other relationships, when really our relationship with Jesus should affect every single thing that we do, every single relationship, how we do business, how we vote, how we behave, how we interact with others, how we see the world, how we spend our money, how we organize our days, what we consider our priorities because we are not sovereign, Jesus is. We don't know tomorrow, Jesus does. And all our life should not be separated into things that involve Jesus and things that don't. As sovereign Lord, he rules over history and the nations and the cultures and the races in all our life. And so what James is doing here is he's illustrating how our hearts are battling Our hearts are at war, and because of that, they can be incredibly presumptuous and self-sufficient. And he reminds us of four things. He gives us a different perspective. First, he says in verse 14 that we need to remember that we are actually ignorant about the future. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow, he says. We don't know the future. We might work hard at it, but we don't know the future. And that's James's first words to us in showing the proper wisdom and humility that we should pursue. The second reminder is that we're finite. Our days are numbered. You are just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. As you get older, and I'm not very old, it feels like time is moving faster. Is that true? Remember when you were a little kid and you had that crazy grandmother who would come to you and say, you're getting so big. And you were like, why is she saying that? And now you do that. You go to little kids and you say, you're getting so big. You've become that crazy grandmother or grandpa. You're echoing them. But it happens because when you're little, 
You want time to go faster. I want to be done with this grade. I want to be graduated. I want my license. I want to start my I want to get married. I want to. I want to. And then when you get older, what you're looking for is breaks in life. <laughs> Slow it down. Slow it down. It's going too fast because life is a vapor. You gotta remember that. A week and a half ago was the first day back to school. And um, my nine-year-old, Hezekiah, is in third grade. Listen, I was a total champ all morning. Went to, you know, got up, made breakfast, got him dressed, helped Amanda, got, got him to school, and uh, dropped him off in his class, and great. On the way home, I had this one thought that destroyed everything for me that day. <laughs> and the thought was this, which is weird. I thought, okay, he's nine, he's nine years old. He he's going to be 18 in another nine years. So he has already spent half of the time that's going to live with me. I, I mean, I, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm kind of car just weeping. You know, I'm like, Amanda's like, what, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> but life happens quick. And we've got to remember that. Can't waste it. If you look at verse 15, James says that we are utterly dependent on God. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, what James is not saying is that we don't actually need to say Lord willing or if God wills or God willing, and that if we say those things, it'll somehow create a spiritual mindset. Now, what he is saying is about our attitude. There needs to be an attitude of the heart reflected in our speech to show that we are humbly dependent upon the Lord rather than worldly, prideful, selfish, self-centered, self-focused, and lacking humility. And then in verse 16, he reminds us of the importance of humility. We are ignorant of the future. We're finite. Our days are numbered. We're utterly dependent on God, and we ought to be humble. He's saying that when you plan without factoring these truths, without factoring the ultimate reality of God, then you are being arrogant. And when you are being arrogant, you are boasting. When you are boasting, you are sinning. He takes something so mundane as the act of thinking and speaking about the future and planning without actual adequately being dependent upon God and prayer, fully humble before him. And he's saying that, in fact, this is the sin of arrogance and boasting, and that boasting is evil, and that Christians are not to think and speak presumptuously like that. We are all guilty of this. I am guilty of this because my heart is battling these things. My heart is at war. And our knee-jerk reaction to what James is saying could be to say this, everyone I know struggles with this. Everyone I know from time to time says things about brothers and sisters in Christ that they shouldn't say. Everybody from time to time goes into conflict in a very sinful, worldly way. Everybody says things about neighbors that we shouldn't say. We also, from time to time, not adequately, humbly factor and plan God into what is happening in our lives. Aren't we kind of making too big of a deal of this? And James says, no, not at all. James says that the way we function in this area is an excellent indication of whether or not we are spiritual or worldly. Look at what he says in verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and don't do it, it is sin for them. So we can say everyone does these things. We all struggle here. We all say things we shouldn't. We all go into conflict in a bad way. We all plan and not factor God in our planning. Some of, this some of the best people I know do these things. It's not a big deal. And James says, on the contrary, knowing what you ought to do and failing to do so is one of the best indicators of worldliness, of a heart in a battle, of a heart at war. Because when you fail to do it, it's not a matter of ignorance but of willful disobedience, lazy disobedience, and lack of humility. So what James is saying, in other words, in verse 17, is this, that the sins of omission 
are particular acute signs of worldliness in a lack of humility. And Christians are to bear in mind how sinful it is to fail to do what God commands. And he's commanded that we enter into conflict in a virtuous, godly way, that we pursue those things, that we do not be destructive in how we speak or think about brothers and sisters and neighbors, and that we not be presumptuous and self-sufficient in how we plan and speak about the future. When we fail to do those things, it is a mark of our sinfulness, a mark of hearts that are at war, hearts in a battle, and a mark of our need of repentance and forgiveness and grace. So remember, from our hearts, which are in a battle, flows conflict and judgment and self-sufficiency. And if I stop right there, That'd be a terrible place to stop. Because we all say, I can raise my hand to conflict in a sinful way. I can raise my hand to judgment. I can raise my hand to self-sufficient planning. Is that true? We all do this. So what is the cure? What is the cure for a heart that is at war? Which again, we all can fall into this category. What is the cure for a heart that is losing the desire battle? And we desire more horizontally anything in creation, what we can only get vertically, God. What is the cure for sinful conflict? What is the cure for judgmental hearts? What is the cure for self-sufficient hearts? The only answer that I can give you, the only answer the text gives us is the gospel of Jesus. Verse 6, he gives us more grace. This is the best news. He gives us grace. He gave us Jesus. Then he says, you've got to submit. You've got to resist in verse 7. You've got to submit to God's ways. Ask yourself, What honors the Lord? What glorifies Him? What pleases Him? Pursue those things and submit yourself to those things. He says also we have to resist. We've got to fight against the sinful desires that are at war within us. Resisting, fighting against those things, resisting the devil says, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Following the example of Jesus, I want to respond in a way that is godly and virtuous, not sinful. What else? James says, here's the answer. Draw near to God. Walk with God. Pursue vertically what you will never be able to find horizontally. The way to win the war of the heart is to look up. Find the Lord. Get to Him. Pursue the spiritual disciplines. Pray Read the Bible. Maintain godly relationships with people. Seek godly counsel. Spend time in prayer and song to the Lord. Because sometimes those are the first things that we get rid of when we need them as first priority. But the first step, the most important thing we ought to do is what verse 8 talks about. James gives us an answer to this using distinctly Jewish terminology. He says this, Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The one word that I can find that can summarize what he just said is the word repentance. Repentance is the first step in drawing near to God. Repentance is much more than saying you're sorry. It's a change of direction. And James' reference to cleansing one's hands means to change one's deeds. His reference to purifying one's heart reverse one's disposition. 
To be miserable, to mourn, and to weep means to hate one's sin and sinful desires. James is not asking for Christians to be a group of perfectly but depressed people. He wants us to be characterized as a people who just are real and who are we just can't stand the sinfulness of our own sin. So he says, start by washing your own hands. Look at your own life. Ask yourself, did I do anything wrong? Did I say anything wrong? Is there anything I need to fix? Apologize. Get rid. Get right in. Or do different in the future. And here's the gospel. We were enemies of God. We were literally in conflict with God. We were self-sufficient beings. And while we were enemies, while we were in conflict, and while we were believing that we were in control of our own future, Jesus died for us to reconcile us to God, to adopt us into his family. He also died for the ones that I've considered my enemies. And when we repent and trust in Jesus, he transforms our warring hearts. He causes us to become agents of peace and reconciliation and helps us to love our brothers and sisters and neighbors like they are family and causes us to desire and pursue their flourishing rather than tearing them down with self-righteous judgment. So what I would say, if you're here and there's someone that you're with, or maybe not, and you're in conflict with. If there's someone that you have casted self-righteous judgments upon, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to begin the process of repenting, reconciling, apologizing, loving, and being a family. Now, the gospel also helps us to see life differently. I'm going to tell you something you've got to remember. We are not living our best life now. Joel Osteen is lying to you. It's a lie. Life is temporary and fleeting like smoke or vapor. Our hearts should not desire to try to build meaning and purpose in this life apart from God, investing in pursuits and things that have no lasting meaning. But instead, may our hearts echo the words of Solomon. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Gospel should really affect how we view our time on earth, how we allocate our time, and how we view and think of eternity. The question then would be how do we best redeem our time? And more important than action steps should be our outlook, our basic attitude towards time and eternity. You've got to remember that the Apostle Paul said this. Pay careful attention to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. By this he means that we must live our lives in light of eternity. In light of spiritual realities. In light of ministry opportunities. In light of great commission urgencies. If we rightly think of time and eternity in light of the gospel, the must-dos... The how-tos will largely take care of themselves. This is to say that when our view of time is right, we are pre-inclined to make the right day-to-day decisions about how we use it. Thus, viewing our time through a biblical lens is essential. So let me just tell you four things to reflect on. Number one, reflect on the brevity of life. And the length of eternity. Are you living for retirement rather than living for eternity? Reflect on the uncertainty of tomorrow. 
You've got to recognize that you are not promised tomorrow. So don't waste what you do have right now. You've got to reflect on the fact that time is your most precious possession. Our allotment of time is a special gift from God for us to use. Use it wisely. And lastly, learn to say no. You have got to know what you can handle. What is the size of your plate? What are things that you should take off of your plate? What should come on your plate? And these, these things require wisdom. So I invite you to allow the Holy Spirit now to speak to you before we move forward into communion and singing, if he is speaking to you about moments, times when you've entered into conflict in an inappropriate way, if you are in conflict with one another right now, if you are in, if you have casted judgment upon somebody else, a fellow image bearer, before we go to have communion, do business with God. If those people are here, find them. Repent. And if you are presumptuously thinking about tomorrow, repent. May God allow us to live our lives in light of eternity. And here's the thing. The, the most important thing to remember, he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, number one, I am the first to ask you to forgive me. I so often enter into conflict in a very worldly, sinful way. I want to attack. I so often can tear into other people with my words. And I can so quickly put a firewall between me and you and the future. Forgive me. And I know that I'm not the only one like that. We all have hearts that are in a battle. We all have hearts that are at war. And we need you. We need you. We need the gospel to transform us, to keep transforming us daily. So may the gospel be the very thing that changes us, the very thing that settles that war. I pray today, God, that you would speak to our people, to your people, that you would remind them of moments and situations that, where we sinned. And may you help us go make those things right. Help us as well to have a humble approach to the future. Help us to live our lives in light of eternity. Help us, God, to desire the flourishing of our neighbors and our sisters and our brothers. Help us, God, to be humble in conflict. We need you. Apart from you, we're going to fail again and again and again and again. We need you, God. We need grace. So pour out more grace upon your people today. And thank you for the great reminder of Christ. We were in conflict with him, with God. And he reconciled us to God. Help us now go do the same. We spoke evil of Jesus. He never spoke a word back. Help us to not tear into our brothers and sisters with words. And like I said before, may you stamp eternity in our eyeballs, God. I pray this in your name.